Today on Golden Girls Sports, Rose kills a neighbor and Walter O'Malley kills Brooklyn. Metaphorically. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby. Oh, Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. It's a Miserable Life premiered on November 1st, 1986, the fourth episode of the show's second season. It was written by Mort Nathan and Barry Finaro, who, along with Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman, were the series' four showrunners, and directed again by Terry Hughes. The girls take it upon themselves to save a historic tree that will be cut down in favor of some road work the city has planned. Making matters tougher is that the tree actually sits on the property of Frida Claxton, the meanest lady in the neighborhood. Rose thinks she has convinced Mrs. Claxton to give her support to the tree, but at a community hearing, Mrs. Claxton lets her feelings be known. She hates that tree, she hates Rose, and she only listened to her because of the Danish Rose brought to her house. Rose snaps and tells Mrs. Claxton that lots of people like the tree right where it is, and if she doesn't, then she can just sit there and drop dead. And so she does. And the girls find themselves throwing a funeral for a lady they barely know and definitely didn't like. It's at that funeral that our sports reference comes into play. With Rose, Blanche, and Dorothy sitting in one pew and Sophia in another, it looks like all of them are sharing a moment of quiet reflection. Turns out one of them isn't. Oh my God, this is terrible. Such a tragedy. Such a tragedy. Come on. Try not to upset yourself. Two men on. The bottom of the ninth. (laughs) That Bacigalucrasura hasn't bunt. (laughs) Yes, Sophia was listening to a baseball game on her transistor radio during Mrs. Claxton's funeral. I mean, she never liked her anyway, and at least she didn't kick the casket or accidentally cremate her. According to Kathy Spear, the story of this episode was based on a real-life incident that happened on the set of her previous show, Benson. The actor hired to play a plumber that dies suddenly while fixing Benson's sink actually did die unexpectedly right there on the set. There, as here, the deceased character had no one to arrange a funeral for him. It's kind of creepy. Mrs. Claxton was played by veteran actor Nan Martin, who would return to the Golden Girls in the season 4 episode Foreign Exchange, in which she played Sophia's Italian friend Philomena, who may or may not be Dorothy's actual mother. Martin was a native of Santa Monica, California, and started on television on an episode of Schlitz Playhouse in 1952. She worked straight into the 21st century, appearing in hundreds of credits. On television, she specialized in character parts on shows ranging from The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, to Curb Your Enthusiasm and CSI. She was the first actor to have roles on both the original Twilight Zone series and its mid-80s remake. Martin later had a recurring spot on the Drew Carey show as Drew's intimidating department store-owning boss, Mrs. Louder, and also played a critical role in 1987's A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. She and Rue McClanahan did the play Lettuce and Lovage in Vienna in the early 90s. Nan Martin passed away in 2010. At the community hearing scene, Sophia mentions that old Sicilian negotiating tactic of leaving a horse's head in someone's bed. Instead of referencing The Godfather, she mentions National Velvet, the 1944 classic starring a 12-year-old Elizabeth Taylor as a girl who jockeys her prized horse named the Pie in the Grand National Steeplechase. In Sicily, you cut off a horse's head and put it in somebody's bed. (laughs) Sophia, you're making that up like hell. Our garbage commissioner, Fredo Lombardi, went on strike once. 
He woke up the next morning sharing a pillow with National Velvet. Mickey Rooney and Angela Lansbury also starred in the beloved movie, which won two Oscars and was entered into the Library of Congress just a year after its release. Sophia's outburst of exasperation at the funeral over that ill-timed bunt allows us to step back in time and talk about a seminal moment in sports history, one that affected lots of real people and even the fictional Petrillo family. Picture it. Brooklyn, 1957. Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley is about to become the most hated man in New York by announcing he's moving the club to Los Angeles for the 1958 season. The Dodgers had been an institution in the borough dating back to the late 1800s. The Brooklyn Baseball Club had many nicknames over the years, including the Superbas, Atlantics, Robins, and Trolley Dodgers, which came from residents having to avoid the currents and cars of the new electric transportation system. Sometimes, multiple names were used in the same article. Most people simply called the team Dem Bums. The team formally became the shortened Dodgers in 1933, but the love affair between it and Brooklyn was already in full swing. They didn't win very often, finishing close to last place quite frequently between 1920 and 1940, but eventually they found a new way to torture their loyal fans by winning a ton of games in the regular season and either losing the pennant in heartbreaking fashion or losing in the World Series. Between 1941 and 1956, the Dodgers lost the National League pennant on Robbie Thompson's ninth inning home run and dropped six World Series, winning it all only once in that glorious season of 1955 when they beat the hated Yankees in seven games. Elston Howard sends a grounder to Pee Wee Reese, and these Dodgers at last are world champions. Delirious with joy, teammates and fans mob the Brooklyn pitcher in wild acclaim. In the Dodger clubhouse is the pandemonium only a great victory can generate. And setting the zany pace are Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, and Don Newcomb. This is Brooklyn's greatest baseball day. Newspapers shriek the tidings. Brooklyn and the Dodgers had a unique connection. The players lived in the surrounding communities, walked the boardwalk at Coney Island after games, and played catch with kids in the streets. It wouldn't be unusual to see legends like Carl Erskine, Don Zimmer, and Hall of Famers Duke Snyder and Pee Wee Reese carpooling to the stadium together. At the risk of sounding cliche, the Dodgers were more than a baseball team to Brooklyn. They gave the borough an identity that it relished. In a 2012 article in the New York Post, Vin Scully, who was the team's legendary broadcasting voice from 1950 to 2016, said, quote, For many, many years, especially during the war years, if you mention the word Brooklyn, people laughed. In the movies, you might find a bunch of GIs, and the one who was loud or raucous or rough-talking, he was always from Brooklyn, so people made fun of Brooklyn. I think the people relied on the Dodgers to give them some self-respect. I think that's why the relationship was so great and so deep and lasted so long. End quote. So then, why move 3,000 miles away to California, which had no major league teams at all at the time? Same reason teams move today. Money. Specifically the kind that comes from a sweetheart deal on a brand new stadium. Ebbets Field opened in 1913 and was built on land bought a little at a time by then-team owner Charles Ebbets. Originally holding 18,000 people, it expanded and ballooned over the next 30-something years to a capacity of 35,000 by 1937. 1950, the year Walter O'Malley took over controlling interest in the club, cramped Ebbets Field was falling apart, laden with obstructed views, had very little parking for fans driving in from Long Island, and wasn't prepared for the future. O'Malley wanted to own his own new stadium, and he knew exactly where to put it, at a plot of land between Atlantic and Flatbush Avenues. 
He envisioned a domed venue and had plans for it drawn up by famed architect and scientist Buckminster Fuller. O'Malley wanted to use a part of the Federal Housing Act called Title I to have New York condemn the segmented land so that he could buy it all easily and cheaply. There was one problem, though. Robert Moses, a powerful and highly politically connected public official, was the last word on what got built anywhere in New York. Title I required the condemned land be used for public works projects only. And to Moses, a hard-ass if there ever was one, a privately-owned baseball stadium did not fit the definition of public interest. Moses told O'Malley if he wanted the land on Atlantic Avenue, he would have to buy it all himself. But O'Malley, who was a lawyer by trade and not the kind of billionaire team owner we have today, knew he couldn't get together the necessary funds. Moses offered the Dodgers a plot in Queens on which to build, but the stadium would have to be owned by New York City. O'Malley wasn't interested in being a tenant and defiantly proclaimed his team was the Brooklyn Dodgers, not the Queens Dodgers. The plot in Queens would later be used as the site of Shea Stadium. O'Malley then set his sights on Los Angeles, where he had already purchased an old park named Wrigley Field and some surrounding land. He traded that land to the city for space in Chavez Ravine and had Dodger Stadium built in time for the 1962 season, while the team played at the cavernous L.A. Memorial Coliseum in the meantime. And by convincing New York Giants owner Horace Stoneham to move his team from Manhattan's polo grounds to San Francisco instead of Minneapolis, O'Malley brought not only big league baseball to California, but also ready-made rivalry all in one shot. Meanwhile, back in Brooklyn, O'Malley was vilified for decades as the man who ripped the heart out of the borough. It's only recently that Moses' part in the team's relocation has been more harshly criticized. Still, to some observers, such as New York Times sports columnist Dave Anderson, O'Malley will always be Brooklyn's final bump. Quote, But the belief here is that O'Malley, who was more of a businessman than a baseball man, knew Moses would never agree to that downtown stadium. O'Malley also knew that taking a major league team to a new market, as the Braves had done when moving to Milwaukee from Boston in 1953, would create a financial bonanza from a new stadium, ticket sales, and television income. To anyone around the Dodgers then, the thinking was all too obvious. End quote. Today, at the spot where the Dodger Dome would have stood, is Barclays Center, the billion-dollar state-of-the-art home of the Brooklyn Nets of the NBA and the New York Islanders of the NHL, who are my favorite team. Barclays Center was completed in 2012 by builder Bruce Ratner, who had a lot of help in bending the rules and using resident uprooting eminent domain laws to finally push the long gestating project over the hump. It's amazing what can change over the course of 40 years or so. Brooklyn's anger and frustration over losing the Dodgers was briefly mentioned in a later Golden Girls episode. Mother's Day was the show's third season finale. And the script, by Fanaro and Nathan, with a story by Spear and Grossman, centered around flashbacks of the girls remembering celebrating the holiday through the years. In her story, Sophia recounts the day 30 years earlier when she asked her own elderly mother, played by Beatrice Arthur, to move in with her and her husband Salvador. Sal wasn't too hot on the idea. That's Mama. She sees you looking like this. We'll never convince her to move in with us. Get moving. Move! Move! Oh, boy, boy, it's a dark day in Brooklyn today. The Dodgers are moving out and your mother's moving in. We've previously established that the Golden Girls love to recycle guest stars. Sid Melton, who played Sophia's beloved late husband, also belongs on that list. Melton played Sal Petrillo in seven episodes, and in one very strange return engagement, also played a waiter in a court jester costume in season six's What a Difference a Date Makes, written by Mark Cherry and Jamie Wooten. 
After establishing him in one role multiple times over four seasons, seeing Dorothy's father also be her waiter while she's on a date with guest star Hal Linden is a very off-putting experience, especially since Sid Melton wasn't the type of actor to disappear into a role. He was one of those characters Vince Scully talked about, a squat, often rough-edged goofball that was there to generate laughs. And this one actually was from Brooklyn. Melton's career spanned 70 years, mostly in comedy, where he either supplied comic relief or escalation where needed. It would take an hour to list all of his 140-plus credits, but he was best known for his roles as Captain Midnight's sidekick Icky Mudd, that's with two Ds, incompetent painter Alf Monroe on Green Acres, and nightclub owner Uncle Charlie on three of Danny Thomas's TV shows, all the way from Make Room for Daddy in the 50s to Make Room for Granddaddy in the 70s. Danny Thomas's son Tony became a successful TV producer and helped bring the Golden Girls to life along with his producing partners Paul Junger-Witt and Susan Harris, who created the show and wrote many of its most important episodes. Tony Thomas had known Sid Melton since he was a kid on the set of his dad's shows and called Melton Uncle Sid. During the audition process for Mother's Day, Thomas wanted to make sure that Uncle Sid wasn't getting the role of Sal because he was, you know, Uncle Sid. Grossman said that Melton was cast because he excelled at playing, quote, schlubby old men from Brooklyn. And according to script coordinator Robert Spina, everyone on the show eventually called Melton Uncle Sid thanks to the family dynamic fostered by the producers. Melton's younger brother was screenwriter Louis Meltzer, who was one of the writers on the 1939 boxing drama Golden Boy, which we talked about on our previous episode. Sid Melton passed away in 2011 at the age of 94. He may not have been, in his own words, too tall and handsome, but he had a steady career with memorable parts in some of the most important TV shows of all time. Sal's connection to the Dodgers was mentioned again in Season 5's Clinton Avenue Memoirs, written by Tracy Gamble and Richard Vassey. With her mother's memory fading, Dorothy takes Sophia back to their old house in Brooklyn to find a carving Sal had made. There, in a flashback, starring Kyle Hefner as Sal and Jandy Swanson as Dorothy, Dorothy remembers a heart-to-heart conversation she had with her father when her little brother Phil was born. Now, I know you think Phil here's taking your place. Well, I want to tell you something. I love you more than anything. Even more than the Dodgers on five-cent beer night? Okay, even more than that. In season five's The Accurate Conception, written by Susan Harris and Gail Parent, Sophia divulged that Sal's dedication to dem bums might have gone even deeper than most. I wanted to go to college and be a school teacher. Pop wanted me to be a cosmetician in a funeral parlor. He always liked looking at dead people. Dead people in the Dodgers. That was it for him in the good time department. Sometimes just to make him happy, he used to lie in bed with a baseball hat on. As for that dumb bocce-galoop Tommy Lasorda, by 1986, he had managed the Dodgers for 10 seasons, taking over for Walter Alston near the end of the 1976 season. Lasorda would lead the team for 20 seasons and put in 47 total with the organization going back to their days in Brooklyn before retiring after having a heart attack in June of 1996. As a pitcher, Lasorda played just eight games for the Dodgers over the course of two seasons, famously being sent down to the minors so that the team could keep Hall of Famer Sandy Koufax on the roster. Turns out that trade worked out pretty well for everyone, since Lasorda's true calling was in management. After years learning the game from the other side as a scout and third base coach, he managed Los Angeles to four World Series appearances, 
winning titles in 1981 and 88. Today, at 90 years old, he's a Dodgers fan ambassador, autograph machine, and the last skipper to lead the team to a championship. In 1989, the always portly Lasorda made a bet with Dodgers stars Oral Hershiser and Kirk Gibson. If he lost weight, they would each donate money to the charity of Lasorda's choice. The manager lost 35 pounds using slim fast dietary shakes, and the money went to the Sisters of Mercy, an order of nuns that had recently been evicted from their convent in Nashville. Somehow, losing weight to save a bunch of evicted nuns wasn't a plot line used on the Golden Girls. Lasorda's ads for slim fast shakes were ubiquitous on television throughout the late 80s and early 90s. When I look like this, my guys challenge me to lose 20 pounds. Me, Tommy Lasorda, the guy who loves to eat. Well, I lost 30 pounds in three months with Ultra Slim Fast. The plan was easy. I have a delicious shake for breakfast, one for lunch, and then a healthy dinner, even pasta. And I don't feel hungry. The pounds drop off and I feel great. You know, this is the first time I ever lost anything and felt good about it. Ultra Slim Fast. Give us a week. We'll take off the weight. But in 1988, Lasorda was still a pot-bellied, hot-headed baseball institution. And in another appearance on the Golden Girls, he was even used as an insult. In season three's Blanche's Little Girl, Blanche's daughter Rebecca visits her mom in Miami after touring the world as a fashion model. The girls are mildly surprised to see Rebecca isn't as rail-thin as Blanche described her. But their curiosity about her weight eventually gives way to their curiosity about why she's dating Jeremy the verbally and emotionally abusive asshole boyfriend she's brought with her. Here's a sample of their relationship, once again written by Spear and Grossman, which first aired on January 9th, 1988. Well, we're off to the game. Blanche, I didn't know you played baseball. Oh, we're not going to play baseball, Rose. We're going to see a game. Mama offered to drive us over to Vero Beach to see the Dodgers play. Jeremy's a big baseball fan. Becky's a bigger one. Becky's a bigger everything. (laughs) Not everything, Jeremy. Well, we better go. We don't want to miss anything. Yeah, I want to get there early by Becky a Dodger cap. See how many people mistake her for Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> That's it. Oh, that, that is it. Dorothy, now calm down. We'll bring you back a cap, too. <laughs> by the way, in case you were wondering, the Dodgers held their spring trainings in Vero Beach, Florida, beginning all the way back in 1948. They were one of the first baseball teams to use the state to warm up for the season, and the stadium and surrounding area were rechristened Dodgertown for decades. It's now known as Historic Dodgertown, even though the team moved its training facilities to Arizona in 2009. In Blanche's Little Girl, Rebecca was played by actress Sean Sheps, who was asked to wear a padded fat suit for the role. Sheps later credited the show with helping her get out of her own abusive relationship with a boyfriend that constantly criticized her weight. This was her one appearance as Blanche's daughter, she was replaced as Rebecca in season five by Deborah Engel. Jeremy was played by actor Joe Regalbudo, who would go on to co-star on CBS's Murphy Brown from that show's premiere in 1988. Fans of the high-tech computerized vehicle subgenre of 1980s action television might remember Regalbudo from the show Street Hawk about a sleek black airwolf-esque motorcycle that fought crime or something. Despite later having a regular role on one of TV's most popular shows, Regal Budo says he still gets recognized for his one episode of The Golden Girls. Quote, It certainly wasn't a dull or bland part, which is why I think today, almost three decades later, I still get stopped by fans. 
I always think the person is going to mention Murphy Brown, and very often that's the case, but it's amazing how many times someone will bring up this episode and say, I just saw it again last night, and wow, you were a prick, end quote. One more Dodgers reference. In the first episode of season four, entitled Yes, We Have No Havanas, written by Mort Nathan and Barry Fanaro, Blanche and Sophia vie for the affections of the same Cuban Lothario. Meanwhile, Dorothy teaches a night course for adults and finds a surprise student in Rose, who never got her high school diploma thanks to a case of mononucleosis. We slept day and night for the next six months, and when I finally woke up, I had missed my graduation and the integration of Major League Baseball. (laughs) On April 15, 1947, Jackie Roosevelt Robinson took over first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field, forever breaking baseball's color barrier. Robinson was carefully chosen by general manager Branch Rickey because of a few factors. His success in college, his passion for civil rights, his officers training in the military, and having what Rickey called, quote, the guts to not fight back in the face of threats, taunts, and blatant ingrained racism among fans, reporters, and players both inside and outside of the Dodgers, Robinson let his play do the talking, winning National League Rookie of the Year and opening the door for African-American and Latin players for years to come. He also got to play himself in a movie about his own life, the Jackie Robinson story, which was released in 1950. Robinson's uniform number 42 was retired across all teams by Major League Baseball in 1997 to honor his legacy. It's a Miserable Life is another classic episode with a ton of memorable lines. The scene where the girls buy Mrs. Claxton's casket from a Mr. Pfeiffer, the P is not silent, is especially hilarious. The only issue I have with the Lasorda line is believing that Sophia, a woman who we find out is capable of carrying a grudge for over 70 years, would still be rooting for the Dodgers almost 30 years after they left Brooklyn. That would make her one of the very, very few Brooklynites to forgive Walter O'Malley for his grievous transgression. I've lived in two separate sections of Brooklyn. My wife is from Brooklyn. My hockey team now plays in Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn. In my lifetime, the Mets have filled much of the void the Dodgers left when they moved, but I can tell you that there are definitely still people that are really pissed off about this. I'm not sure where they expect the team will have played all these years with Ebbets Field already falling apart in 1950, but as always with sports fandom, logic doesn't have much to do with anything. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, our first feature episode, in which we celebrate the life and career of the one and only Betty White, television icon and part-time football coach. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>